I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Professor Mamocheti Pacheng, who will shortly be embarking on a new role as Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cape Town, with effect from the 1st of July. Her most recent position is that of Deputy Vice-Chancellor in Research and Internationalization at the University of Cape Town, and prior to this post, she served as Vice-Principal for Research and Innovation at the University of South Africa. Academically, Prof. Pacheng specializes in mathematics education, having earned a Ph.D., Master's and Bachelor degrees in this discipline. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Amelia. Thank you for inviting me. Prof. Pacheng, you are about to take the lead at the University of Cape Town, home to approximately 30,000 students who are potentially future leaders of this country and continent. One of UCT's press releases relating to your new appointment mentions that what stood out about Prof. Pacheng was her sound knowledge and understanding of the key challenges and opportunities arising from changing the higher education environment in South Africa and globally. She has a good appreciation of the possibilities that this situation presents for us, her clear understanding of UCT as an African university, its developmental role, its commitment to deepen its links within the continent, internationalization and pioneering, as well as the need to advance divergent critical knowledge systems, makes her a compelling choice as vice-chancellor. End quote. So firstly, could you please tell us more about your strategic plans for the university and some of the milestones you want to achieve? Okay. At the moment, at the University of Cape Town, we have a strategic plan that goes up to 2020. And my, I see my initial role in the first two years. Of course, in 2019, we'll start the process of developing our new strategic plan 2030. But, 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 but what I'll be working at, um, at as a start is um, transformation. Transformation, of course, our vision 2020 is to be uh, inclusive, engaged, and a research-intensive African university. So the agenda for transformation is a big one for us because it's at the core of our 2020 strategy. And when I talk about transformation, I'm, 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 I'm looking here at three levels of transformation. Transformation at the level of access, at the level of participation, and at the level of success. And so we're going to be looking at when you Bring. We, we've in the last 10 years during Dr. Price's uh, uh, era, we've we've managed to increase the number of black students that we accept into the university. But what hasn't changed is the institutional culture. So we have the students here, but they still feel alienated and marginalized. So the challenge moving forward would be working on the institutional culture. In, 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 in transforming the culture of the institution to make sure that it's inclusive and it's not Eurocentric to an extent that other students, African students coming into the space feel alienated. We're also look working, going to be working on curriculum transformation. Curriculum transformation in, um, uh, can be, is done differently in different disciplines. We already have the curriculum change, task, uh, task, curriculum change working group that has produced a framework that can guide academics in different uh, disciplines to embark on this journey of curriculum change. And in some disciplines, 
the, it has already started. And in some, in, 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 it unfolds, as I said, differently. Sometimes it's introducing completely new programs, sometimes new modules, sometimes it's reimagining the modules and the programs that have always been in existence. So that's going, that's going to be one of the things that we want to look back and say, how have we, how have we done? The third thing that we want to be doing in terms of transformation is the narrowing of the performance gap. When we look at the numbers, as I said, the success of Dr. Price is bringing the black students in, into the space. And of course, they have had to qualify, get the, 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 the correct number of points. So we still take creme de la creme in the country, but we've increased the intake of our black students. But what we're seeing is when it comes to performance, there's a big gap between black and white students. And that's cause for concern. And we're challenging faculties and departments to think about how they can narrow the gap. And it is not good enough to say, well, these students are underprepared. Why is it that it's only black students who, who, that the gap is racialized? The gap should not be racialized if it's about underpreparedness of basic education because they all get the same um, uh, access to the same kind of basic education. And some of them come from the same schools. So we've got to think about what is it. And some of it might have to do with institutional culture. Some of it might have to be with the restructuring programs. And, and we'll be working at, at that as to how, what can we do to narrow the gap. And that's not about lowering standards. That's about critiquing ourselves, what we do and how we do it in terms of teaching and learning to ensure that um, uh, we narrow the gap. And then it's about trans transforming the professoriate. Uh, this is a well-known program pro problem that we've got too few black South African professors and too few uh, black women professors. And, and, and too few women professors, just in general, and even if it's not just professors, it's just leadership in terms of research and such chairs, um, research chairs, we have too few women. And we'll be working on that, um, on that agenda in August to launch our women, uh, women's programs that I'll be, um, I'll be uh, introducing. Of course, I have to wait for Prof Dr. Price to depart. It's not, it's not, it's not um, in my culture to talk about my vision was um, the, 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 the outgoing vice chancellor is still in office to be disrespectful. So we'll be launching the program uh, for women in, in August, but we'll be, we'll be communicating more about our vision moving forward after he has left. There's also initiatives that we need to be doing in terms of research, rethinking funding model um, uh, for, for research beyond the NRF. As we know, funding from the National Research Foundation is going down. So that's one, that will be one of our challenges and, and something that we'll look back at and say how did we change that and how have we done in a few years from now. Thank you very much for that explanation in terms of your vision moving forwards. And obviously, I understand that the, the sensitivities as you are embarking on this buffering before you officially resume your, or take office with your duties. One of the things that I find curious is the, the component of UCT as an African university. And I wanted mm. to find out how does the African continent feature in the university's strategic plans? Is this about intake of students from different countries? Is this about transformation, as you mentioned, from a cultural point of view to move away from Eurocentric practices and start embracing more Afrocentric practices? It's 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 about it's not just about taking it, about the intake. It's about appreciating what being on the African continent makes available to us 
as an opportunity and a resource for our scholarship and our influencing the world. There's value just in just in terms of geographical position, just being where we are, just in terms of the the skies we are exposed to, which you don't find anywhere in many places in the West, and that's why we won the SKA, just in terms of where we are, in terms of access to the seas that we have, um, uh, that, 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 that is not available anywhere else in the world, that we can only get it here. Just in terms of the, the nature of our continent, uh, posing... Uh, particular kinds of challenges to us that our scholars can have the advantage of uh, exploring those questions and um, and and then um, uh, that scholarship positioning us as a university being the top university um, uh, in the world but also the top university that is for Africa because we're dealing with questions that are of interest mm. for the continent. So that's number one, just in terms of position and scholarship. But secondly, it's also in terms of, of um, uh, the role that we play as UCT in the continent. UCT is important, it's critical, not just for South Africa, for, 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 but for the continent. When we go out there in the world, we're not, we're not just UCT, we are Africa. We are oftentimes in the forums that we sit in, we are the only ones sitting in them, and therefore we are the African voice. And so to be the legitimate African voice, we have to engage with the rest of the continent much more than any other university. And engaging, and then that engagement can be at different levels. Some of the engagement that we do, we've got to understand what are the challenges that other universities face on the continent and how can we lend a hand. So in some engagements, we'll be working with people who are not necessarily institutions that are not necessarily at our level, but we want to pick them up so that they can, they, they, they can rise. But we also want to engage with African institutions as, as equals. There are institutions on this continent that we engage with as equals in the um, Alliance of Research Universities in Africa that we, we, re, we, we collaborate with as equals. And we've been exploring possibilities of having joint degree programs. It's a pity that many of the of the universities uh, in the continent, many countries on the continent, do not allow their universities to have co-batched uh, programs with other universities outside their countries. Otherwise, you would have been hearing already about us having doing that because one has been work, working with, um, uh, engaging with um, uh, uh, some of the universities that we started, that we collaborating with. We we launched this year as part of the work that I do as the DVC research. We launched two centers of excellence in collaboration with, with, with the universities on the continent, with the University of Ghana University of, uh, and University of Nairobi, um, one focusing on poverty and inequality, the other one focusing on, on climate change, climate and development. These are two key areas that we believe that the continent has got a lot to offer in terms of the world, and we can't just do them alone as UCT. And it's, it, it, so, so when we talk about our agenda or how we, we plan to, or how Af the African continent features in our strategic plans, it's in this kind of scholarship that where we, we launch centers of excellence in collaboration with them, that have uh, there's a node here in the south, and there's a node in the, in in West Africa and East Africa, and together we work towards uh, attending to problems of poverty and inequality, and problems of climate and development. So it's 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 it, it, it's engaging with the continent in different ways. Re student recruitment is what everybody does, 
and one can argue that sometimes it is done just to, you know, you know, it, it, it can be ceremonial and it can be seen as Big Brother saying we train better so just come to us. We just don't want to do it that way. We want to do it beyond just student recruitment and engage with, with African scholars on, on scholarship, what we're really here for. I think that co-creative element is really important and particularly when we look at it from an academic point of view that scholarship is by its very nature, it's very networked and diverse. People yes. don't work in isolation, they collaborate with their peers across the spectrum. And Absolutely. one of the things that I find though is that we still have this, this tendency of, of adopting more Western philosophies as opposed to really developing our own ideas and having this refreshing perspective of what our views and visions are from Africa. True. Part of, part of our engagements uh, in the new projects that we have, I mean, this, this year we launched, um, again, another three. So there's these two centers of excellence, but we've got three other projects on decolonizing um, uh, education, higher education. They focus on three different areas, one on social sciences, one on archaeology, and the other one on psychology. And, and, and part of those kinds of initiatives is really to foreground Afri- African epistemologies. Um, and, 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 and these are targeted projects, but, but there will be other projects that, that, that will emerge, some of which will be curriculum development projects that are about um, African knowledge systems. Um, uh, so, so engaging with the continent strengthens us in this particular way when we try to explore a decolonizing knowledge or, or African epistemologies. And it's also part of making our voice stronger globally. When we engage with our global, our global partners, we, we come with a strength as the continent of this way of seeing and doing that's not necessarily Western, but it brings a different gaze into a problem, even if it's a global problem, it's not, it's not a local problem. Of course, local problems, in my view, are also global, but it brings this gaze that's different uh, because the epistemologies and methodologies and approaches that we use um, here as we collaborate with our African partners. Completely, and diversity, I think, always comes up with better Uh, possibilities for solutions now drawing on something that you mentioned when we when we were talking in the in the introductory element was about transforming the professorate uh, with a call for more women more black women in particular and I consider that building female leadership capacity is important for the future of women in the continent and across the world from a role modeling perspective of what they do, how they are able to influence policy and develop economic empowerment. And when I look around at academic leadership in our country, only two names come to mind apart from yours as female vice chancellors, and that's uh, Professor Cheryl Delaray, University of Pretoria, and Professor Kaliso Motosi for University of Zululand. NMU University is also a woman. We've got Professor Mayegiso in Mpumalanga. Of course, it's not enough. What, in your opinion, do you think we need to do to ensure that more women make it to the top? You know, the, the, the truth of the matter is that um, when you're a woman, even today in 2018, you still have to work more than double as hard to even be considered for any leadership position. And 
And when you work that hard and you, you, you get, you tick the boxes that, that says scholarship, tick, um, experience as an executive, tick, um, you know, management, tick, um, what happens with when you're a woman is that the goalposts shift. And that's, for me, that's my experience, that the, the goalposts shift. So there's double and, standards. And well, there's personality. Suddenly your personality becomes of an issue, okay? And, and that, in my view, is what keeps us not improving. Because when personality becomes an issue, there's a different measurement. Okay? And it's so, a variable. Well, it is, it, it is a variable, but it doesn't matter for, for a man, okay? So a man can, can still get a, a vice chancellorship even if they've had affairs before. Uh, in their current job. Nobody brings that up. It's not something that we talk about. But a woman can be critiqued for being too loud. You know, that's not done. And, and I'm being controversial here deliberately because we've got to put these things on the table. Women's personalities suddenly become the issue when leadership comes. You, you're supposed to have a rating. You're supposed to... Has there been in this country a woman without a PhD being a vice-chancellor? No. Has there been men? Yes, more than one. Okay? I will not mention names, but there are men in this country who lead big universities and they don't have PhDs. Okay? So women um, have been ticking the, the boxes on, on scholarship, experience, the, management, exactly. and now we're having another factor to contend with, and that's personality. Exactly. Is there another way of being able to help get women to the top. So if we are now being challenged on, on soft issues from a personality perspective, are there other intervening factors, for instance, through introducing quotas or nominations? Well, we've got to, I don't think so. I think we've got to challenge it because, um, by the way, the challenges to personality is when men feel that the woman is so strong that you're so well achieved that um, they feel threatened in your presence that um, your personality becomes an issue. Okay, they expect a woman to be um, invisible in their presence. Okay, so we cannot we cannot um, uh, just pretend that, that and, and, and use quotas to get that. We've got to call it out. Okay, we've got to call patriarchy out when it shows up, and we've got to call it what it is. Okay, and challenge it. I, I'm all for appointing people on merit, and I'm saying the same standard should work for men and for women. So, so, so my view is that we've got to call it out. And if we call it out, at least we can get to a stage where women and men are treated equally. At the moment, we are not. Okay? At the moment, it's okay for men to do other things, but not for women. Okay, so, and, and I've just given you one example. I mean, affairs are one, no PhDs are another. If you take our CDs and put them online and check, you know, um, what the vice chancellors have, if you take over as a woman, what you what you have to bring and what your predecessor had, then people will see. And you have basically to be walking on water. <laughs> and quite frankly, as you said, when you do a comparison of CVs, and I, I, I look back at this on some of the studies that have been done in terms of trying to eliminate bias, when the same CV is presented, identical, verbatim, but if you replace the gender, so we have Mrs. X versus Mr. Y, that yes. Mr. Y is seen to be the superior candidate purely on gender because the CV exactly. is exactly the same. Yeah. But one of the things that I, I look at, and, and this is going on to more of a personal level specifically on 
your agenda and your track record of achievements. Mathematics is conventionally regarded as a male field and often because something is perceived as being a male field it creates barriers for women to access mm. and I'm reminded of a film which I think was released towards the end of, of, of last year or maybe it was 2016 based on Katherine Johnson called Hidden Figures as mathematicians who were regarded as essential human computers for the NASA space mm. programs in the 1960s their mm. talent was undermined by both race and gender. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to study mathematics? I mean, it, it, it was a safe place. It was a safe place for me. I didn't know that mathematics was special, thanks to my parents, who treated boys and girls, uh, their sons and daughters the same. Um, so they, they, they didn't make math special at all. And so I, I, did, I had no idea that people struggled with maths. I went to it because it made sense. I hated memorizing. I couldn't do it. And, and history required me to memorize. Biology required me to memorize. And, and mathematics didn't. If I got that a big idea and I understood it, I could use it. I didn't even have to remember the numbers. Um, I've got the idea. You can bring the problem whichever way. And, and I would be able to do it. So it felt safe for me, okay? It felt safe for me um, uh, to get into mathematics. And, and I think it's because of the teachers that I had. I had good teachers. Um, firstly, the, the teachers never, the teachers that I, I don't remember, actually, in my, in my whole basic education, anyone saying this about maths. I mean, it, it was never something that featured in I only remember at university, um, um, uh, that uh, as we were going along, I think I was doing third year, and there were two of us girls, and, and suddenly there was more attention as to who's doing maths, because the maths class had shrunk tremendously. There were just 10 of us in class, and two of us were girls. I think there were 11 or 12. The two of us were girls. And, and, and so we, we got that attention, and when we went to fourth year, I was the only one with the boys. But before then, I, I didn't have a sense that mathematics is something difficult. So I thought it's an easy way up. Uh, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's actually the truth. It's my truth. It's your truth. It's your aptitude and, and your development. And I'm really glad that you, you took that route because it is, it's opening the doors for other ladies moving ahead to know what's yeah. possible. We often hear that STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and mathematics are being regarded as pivotal for jobs of the future. But yet, when we look at various reports, um, you know, from World Economic Forum, etc., they indicate that women are underrepresented in these disciplines, which is creating a gap. And it goes back to, as you said earlier, where we're looking at the disadvantages of uh, almost racial disadvantages of some of our black students. But this is going to be another area where there will be a gap and a disadvantage that is being created for jobs of the future and opportunities in the world. There definitely will be a disadvantage for women in the future uh, if they don't get into mathematics earlier. And I think the the first big thing that we need to do, I mean, oftentimes we go just for the curricula. I think the first the first thing is advocacy. I mean, the way we talk about mathematics is actually worrying in, in, in my view. I mean, it is very easy for people to talk about how difficult mathematics was for them. 
powerful people, influential people. And I think that says to young people that it is okay to fail mathematics because other people find it difficult. Powerful people that I respect find it difficult. Nobody talks about history that way or Afrikaans that way or English that way. My view is that we've got to stop talking about maths and science in that way. We, we, we have to talk about it as, as something that's useful, that is important. With to a positive lens. Definitely with a positive lens, because there's going to, with the fourth industrial revolution, it's going to be even worse, because if you're going to learn coding, the, 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 the same kind of thinking, ways of thinking are going to be required. So, so, so it's important that our, our, our learners, our young people, you know, get to enjoy mathematics. Of course, it's a, it's a, it's a different, it's a, it's a kind of a different subject because it's sort of hierarchical. If it, it, it's connected, um, you, you can't just say if you didn't do get math grade four right, you will get math grade eight right because they're connected. What you learn at grade four, you're gonna need when you go higher. So, so children have to know the connectedness of mathematics, and that I think is the complexity that even some teachers don't make visible to learners that that these things are connected. So. So what you learn in algebra today, you're going to need in, in calculus when, as you move on. So that's the only complaint. Otherwise, it, every learner, in my view, can do mathematics. We just have to study it right. We, we have to study it with a positive attitude, uh, building that positive attitude that you can do it, and then improve the teaching of it. Uh, so that teachers themselves are confident in it, but also they recognize the hierarchical nature of mathematics, the connectedness of mathematics, and, and so that when, they, when a child can't can solve a particular problem, the focus is not just on solving that one problem, but it's on diagnosing where, where the root of the problem is so that you can fix that because it's going to fix the rest of the problems that come after that. I, 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 and I think it's key for our future. Your life has been intricately involved in education and I, I hear the passion coming through your voice on the various subjects that we've spoken about. Mm. You have founded the Adopt-A-Learner Foundation, which is a non-profit that began in 2004 and provides financial and educational support to students from township and rural areas to acquire higher education qualifications. And I imagine that it must be incredibly rewarding to lead this important program. Can you tell us a little bit more about the foundation. Well, I started the foundation in 2004, and that was after I, 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 I heard that I was the first black South African African woman to get a PhD in mathematics education. And, and as much as people were excited that they had the first one, I, I was petrified. I thought, wow, if you're the first, you have a huge responsibility. Because I thought, as much as the country is celebrating, the country has got a right 10 years from now to ask me whether I've been able to produce more. So I thought, what is it that got me here, and what is it that, I would have, that, that could have gotten me here earlier that can help other young people like myself get to where I got to? And, and I realized that I never had really a sister or, or an older brother who held my hand um, uh, in mathematics or in my higher education and, uh, you know, to, to, to show me the way. And I thought, I grew up in the township, so I went back to the township where I started, and I started an adopt learner. Initially, we started, I started with uh, um, supporting students at high school, and, and, and then I went on to support them when they, when they go to university. So essentially, what we do is we, we, we fund 
their education. Um, um, uh, we don't fund anymore at high school, at basic education level, um, because that stopped when the government introduced um, uh, free education for students at basic education who sort of fee, fee-free schools because uh, most of the students were in there. But we're targeting students who completed matric at um, township or rural areas because that's where I come from. And, and, and we understand that these students, most of them, uh, do not have role models at home, do not have support at home, even though they have the potential. And potential, when you come to those, from, from those schools, is not that you've got a distinction. Even getting a 60% or a 50% shows potential. If you come from a school, a township or a rural school, where there was no teacher or the teaching was not at the level that it should be. So, and, and we work with a model that says with potential and, and hard work, you can produce success. Um, and so some of the students that we started uh, working with, um, we've got a few graduates. We've got students who've completed national diploma in IT. We've got students who um, have got DTEX, um, uh, chemical engineering. We've got some who are doing um, masters or PhDs in mathematics. Uh, we've got one who's doing um, um, a, a master's degree in data science. Um, and some of them, we, we started with them at undergraduate. Some of them we got... Uh, at the second year, because when they get uh, brilliant uh, uh, results at a metric, companies um, rush to fund them. And then they get into university, but there isn't much support. They don't have the cultural capital, even though they have the intellectual capital, and they struggle to, to pass. They fail one module, the, the funder drops them because the funder says you're not good enough. And then they are stranded. But they're quite bright, you know. Or, you know, they haven't been excluded, but they failed one or two modules. And then they, we would find them desperate, and we would pick them up and help them to complete their degrees. And it, some of the students came up that way. And, and so we've got, we've got uh, quite um, um, a good number of students who we have supported. We give them, we, sub, we, we, we pay for their fees. We give them um, a, a, a starter pack, a laptop. Um, they get hand-me-downs, smartphones, and, and then they get a stipend every month. I do not raise funds for this project. When people invite me, companies invite me to speak, I ask them to donate to the foundation. And the reason I do that is because in the way we work in Adopt Elena, we, we do not want to drop students. So if you ask for funding, the funder will tell you how to run the money. They will, they will impose their values on you. And our view is that we stick it out with the students. We understand what poverty does to students who are bright. It can, it can cripple your confidence. It can, it can present you as not able even when you are. You are. It, sometimes it, you make wrong choices because you are just not informed. So we stay in with the students, and, and we've seen success in that way of uh, students becoming, you know, getting their degrees. Um, uh, despite the fact that some of them don't get it in record time, some of them do get it in record time. So we've, we've seen a lot of success, and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the students and what they have achieved. Well, congratulations. It is truly a fantastic concept that is enabling, supportive, and nurturing potential, which often gets lost to the system. 
Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to Professor Mamocheti Pacheng, who is the incoming Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Now I'd like to turn a little bit more towards a personal perspective. And one of the questions I ask all my guests is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. And I wondered if you could tell us, in your opinion, what have been some of your key drivers? I think, I think the first one is that I'm damn scared of poverty. I grew up poor. And one of the things that has driven me as a young person was that my dad managed to convince us that the only way out of poverty is to get an education, to get the highest level. And he used to say, even if you want to be a tea maker, you must be the best tea girl in the world. And that has driven me. Excellent. The idea that, the idea that I can run away from poverty in that way. And can you tell us a few of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Critical moments. I, I think I think that the moments that stand out was the I mean I, I grew up with a mother who was studying and, and I think it they, 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 I keep getting flashbacks of how we we would study with a candle with my mother on the dining room table and and she would check her homework and and then go back to his to her books. And I can remember the one maths um uh, 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 homework that she helped me with, with the I don't know if you know the greater si- the greater than and the less than sign. Yes. Which of course uh, are greater than or less than exactly exactly how the mouth of the crocodile is open. Um, and and my mother I can remember my mother explaining explaining the signs to me so well that and we had a, a a student teacher in our class who didn't get it quite correct. And I went back, I went to school with my homework done, and the teacher marked me wrong. And, 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 and I was correct, because my mom had helped me. Until the student teacher left, and our teacher said, you are right. And, and, and that's it. I mean, it's, it's, it's some of those moments keep playing, up, playing out for me um, uh, as I reflect back, that the times when we studied, the times when we, we would wait for my mom, who had gone to night school because she completed metric, doing subject one by one um, um, uh, whilst we were going to school and, and we would wait there for her. She would cook and then go to night school and then she would come back and dish out for us and then we would eat only when she comes back. Um, uh, uh, I remember many days of, of, of eating a pup with water and sugar simply because we didn't have anything to eat. I can remember days where I had lekker crap on my, on my arms because of um, not eating healthy food. And, and uh, you know, so, so there's memories of poverty, that there's memories of hope that I remember in my childhood growing up, and there's, there's memories of excitement uh, when, 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 you, you, when I got my degree 
and 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 the, my family, my dad and my mom were so happy about how they celebrated that, and I didn't understand why it meant so much, because you think your 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 uncles and whatever are educated, and you learn later that actually you are the first generation of graduating the family, and that's why the celebration. Even though there was no party, they didn't throw a party, but the uncles were there singing and dancing, and then we just go back and we eat, and it's just us the family. There's no party. There's no there's no speech. But but it is those uh, there's critical moments like those that that come to mind when I reflect back at the journey. I'm getting a wonderful picture here, and I I just see all these E's: education, excellence, endurance, yeah. exuberance, excitement. Prof. Beijing, lastly, as we close out the conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration you'd like to pass on to our young ladies in the continent that are listening to us today? I I, I have I have this quote that I like that I have on my phone screen that I want to share, and here it is. It says, "Be who you are. Don't take nonsense. Work hard. Don't apologize for being fabulous, and stay the course." Oftentimes people start and they don't stay the course. You have to stay the course no matter how hard it is. Never give up. Stay the course. Thank you very much. Those are very important words that I, I hope our listeners will take to heart. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show today and we wish you every success in your forthcoming role as the new Vice-Chancellor of University of Cape Town. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you so much, Emily. You have been listening to Humanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Mamukheti Pacheng, the incoming Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cape Town.